Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Buzz Knight, and this is the Taking a Walk podcast, where we love to interview musicians and authors and executives and old friends from the radio business. Dave Chachi Dennis, he's the president and co-founder of Benstown, the leading international radio imaging company. He's one of the greatest guys, and I can't wait to talk to him on Taking a Walk next. Well, Chachi, thanks for being on Taking a Walk, albeit uh, virtually, but it's so great to be with you. Oh, Buzz, thank you so much for uh, having me, man. It's it's an honor to be here. We usually are at uh, industry uh, events, and um, at that point, it's a little hard to be able to break away and do the actual walk, but uh, we could always give that a stab at another point. I, I would love to do so. It was great seeing you in Vegas uh, at NAB and uh, spending some time with you there. Did you lose the nest egg out there at all? <laughs> you know, here's the the funny thing. My mom loves playing uh, the slot machines, and she she had asked how I did uh, in Vegas, and I honestly did not have a moment of time to gamble even once. I never put a dollar into a machine or on a table. I generally do when I uh, when I go to Vegas. I uh, like to play a little bit of craps or blackjack or, or some slot machines, but I just never had a moment to do so. What was the best part for you of being at the uh, NAB in Vegas? You know, the, it, my favorite part, Buzz, is seeing everyone uh, such as yourself and hanging out. And I really had a great time at the at the cocktails and conversation. Uh, but as far as, uh, you know, I guess the, the best takeaway for me uh, in this particular NAB was really just all the conversation about AI. It's actually really here. 
It is. It is. As we speak, uh, Congress right now is uh, grilling uh, the open AI uh, creator, uh, Sam Altman. So what's your feeling? Is it something to um, a thousand percent embrace or to walk cautiously towards? Man, that is such a good question. I am of the opinion, and, and let me qualify this for a second. Um, I uh, may change my mind an hour uh, from now because it's really hard for me to kind of just get my arms wrapped around it all. Um, But we are really just trying to learn as much as we possibly can. Uh, Gary Wall, who I know you know well, uh, owns the uh, Jack format, Really Bright Man. And uh, he had said to me, this reminded him a lot of the dot-com era. And he had told me he'd actually lost a lot of money during the dot-com era because he invested early. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of those companies went bust, uh, the Pets.com, the Alta Vistas of the world. And while Google was born out of that era and eBay was born out of that era, a lot of companies did not succeed. And so he's kind of of the opinion, and I agree with this, is to learn as much as we possibly can, try to figure it out, and then uh, learn about how we can potentially deploy this uh, for our own, uh, you know, whether in our particular case, imaging. In, in production and so forth. But uh, I think at this point, we're in a mode where we're really just trying to learn. What are your thoughts on it? I am uh, always embracing new technology and innovation. Uh, so I, I look at this as um, something to try to embrace. I just do fear um, an overdoing effect that is going to uh, create this reliance on it that frankly becomes you know just another reason for there to be less bodies deployed and that concerns me greatly I, I agree with that. I read an interesting, I think it was Ad Age article uh, about the A uh, in AI standing for average. At this point, everything that I've seen or or heard come out of AI is, is average. It's impressive. And don't get me wrong, uh, the fact that it uh, scrapes the entire internet and can give you a synopsis on a, on a speech or a book or a movie or whatever it is that uh, you ask is incredibly impressive. Uh, but it's nothing that a human cannot do. It can certainly do it quicker, but there's nothing that's coming out of it at this point that I've heard or seen that you're like, oh my God, that's creatively brilliant. So what shaped you and uh, got you hell-bent on a career around radio? <laughs> it's a, a really uh, a good question. I honestly, I, I fell into it. I uh, was going to school in San Diego at the University of San Diego, and I delivered a pizza to Michael Steele, uh, who was doing nights at the time at Star 100.7 uh, KFMB. And uh, I uh, struck up a friendship with him, and he eventually helped me get a job there screening calls, uh, basically uh, for his show. And then I became his producer slash sidekick. And after I graduated, uh, Rick Dees hired me to be an assistant producer up here. And so I never really even thought about it as a career until I just kind of haphazardly fell into it. And I honestly just uh, was completely enamored by it. And I remember when I first got that job there, just that incredible excitement of, you know, being in the studio, the energy at the radio station, the uh, creatives, that whole, that whole uh, vibe. And I've never lost that excitement for it. When did you first realize that the people associated with the business were completely nuts (laughs) 
<laughs> probably, probably pretty early on. I mean, I remember at the time uh, Jeff and Jer were doing mornings, who I think are uh, absolutely brilliant. And uh, Tracy Johns was the program director, and there was just so many creative uh, uh, people with these quirky personalities. But I've always kind of gravitated towards uh, towards that. My my family is, is is a bit like that. And I think of radio. And when you went back, you know, at the beginning of the interview, and you asked what I liked the most about the NAB, is I love being around the creatives and in the nutters, if you will. It's uh, it's a lot of fun for me. <laughs> the nutters. <laughs> <laughs> I do um, miss, though, um, back to the NAB for a second, the fact that um, you used to see, you know, more program directors and market manager types there who obviously are part of the, the nut squad. And um, I, I didn't feel that that was as prevalent. Yeah, I agree with you completely on that, and I think that is sad. I've noticed that trend uh, for the last several years. There's fewer programmers, fewer people at a station, a local level, and there's more executives. And while I love, obviously, seeing the executives, I do think that uh, these events are unfortunately, um, and I don't know if it's a price or if it's a budget situation at the station level or a combination um, thereof, but I agree. We need to more. We need to have more air talent. Uh, we need to have more programmers and more of those, those nutters there, if you will. Don Anthony does a great job with Morning Show Boot Camp, and uh, a lot of talent come out to that. Um, but I would certainly like to see uh, more of the creatives at, uh, at NAB. So when did you first know you wanted to be a program director? You know, I, at first, I was very excited about uh, being the sidekick and being on air, and Michael would send me out to do all these kind of crazy stru- stunts out on the, you know, on the street, like drive through Olympics, and we had this big, gigantic uh, Cadillac from the 70s called the Surf Pig, and I would uh, pull people over that had the Star 100.7 bumper sticker and uh, give them, you know, prizes, concert tickets, and so forth, so I loved all that, and then I remember coming up here, and I met Johnny, of all places, at Rod's. Stewart's house. Uh, Rod, uh, at the time, the market manager here, uh, Roy Lachlan, his wife, Ellen Kay, who still does mornings at Coast and does incredibly well, she was in a Rod Stewart video, and they had a release party, viewing party, for this Rod Stewart video that Ellen starred in, and I got invited to go to this, and Johnny was there, and Gwen Roberts, who worked at KISS and was a fixture at KISS for many, many years, introduced us, and I was like, wow, man, this is really kind of fascinating. We're from the same town. He was a legendary AC programmer. He was programming Coast and KBIG at the time. And I just got really interested uh, on the programming side really through him. And so Roy allowed me to transfer over to go become Johnny's programming coordinator. And so I was very fortunate to you know learn by Johnny. I, I got so lucky, Buzz, to have incredible mentors around me. I had uh, Tracy Johnson, who I think is a creative and a brilliant programmer, and uh, and Johnny, who are very different. Johnny's much more of a meticulous programmer and more much uh, about the details. But I really, I, I felt, got to learn from these two different sides, but both equally successful PDs. So that sets your sights on being a PD at the age of 28 years old. You were the youngest PD in LA history at that point. Yeah, I got uh, really uh, lucky. Johnny at that point in his career was looking to kind of slow down a little bit. And uh, he was uh, basically became kind of a consultant uh, and really uh, just a mentor to myself and then to Stella at the time. So Stella was given the PD role at uh, Coast and then I was at KBIG. Were you scared to death at first? 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, at that point too, and this is 2000, I think that was in 2004, which is crazy. That was 19 years ago now. But um, I remember, you know, every 10th of a point uh, was a million dollars worth of uh, of billing, uh, annual billing for the radio station. And so they watched uh, those numbers incredibly closely. And uh, there was a, you know, a tremendous amount of pressure. And then you're trying to, you know, I had, I remember there just being a lot of chefs in the kitchen at that point. You had certainly Johnny um, at the point, uh, Steve Smith was involved. Involved, um, you know, our market, we had co-market managers, uh, Greg Ashlock and Roy Lachlan. I mean, there was a lot, a, a station manager, uh, Craig Rossi. I mean, all great people, but there was just uh, a lot of pressure. And I certainly you know, had this great tutelage under Johnny and, and, and Tracy prior to that, but nothing really prepares you for that pressure and uh, just, you know, dealing and not only that you had, you know, big uh, air talent that you're, you're contending with. And so it, it was a lot, a lot came at me very quickly. What did you uh, look at at that period when you think of the promotional uh, flair that existed in radio? And how does it look from then to now when you think of promotional flair? Odd man, that's uh, I think a great question, and I think kind of going back to what we were, you know, the, the initial point we were talking about in regards to AI, and unfortunately, I think our programming, our marketing has suffered over the years. Uh, Johnny uh, told me the story in the 80s, and uh, you're going to be blown away by the statistic, but when Johnny was programming Coast in the 80s, uh, Dick Clark was the spokesperson. Uh, Cox owned him at the time. Their marketing budget was $4 million a year. Coast commercials were on the air practically 365 days out of the year. They had bus boards, billboards. I mean, you could not go, uh, you know, in, you couldn't drive around LA without, you know, having coast hit you everywhere. If you watch uh, Where the Streets Have No Name uh, by U2, that U2 video, uh, you'll see a coast billboard or a bus board uh, drive through that video. Uh, that's how prevalent uh, the, the, the marketing was. When I left KBIG, our marketing budget was when I, uh, 2009 was $800,000 a year. Um, not to name names, but I do know someone who's a marketing director, a good friend of mine in a major market. Um, and uh, he's now basically expected to just trade uh, tickets uh, to sports games uh, for, for marketing. Uh, if they need a station van, they're just going to trade out tickets for that. And so that goes to kind of show you just how different uh, uh, we look at marketing now uh, compared to what we did uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Do you think the lawyers uh, took some of the fun out of this too? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think sure to some degree. I think that uh, you know, there, there's always you know, us creatives are always going to be at odds with with attorneys, but. The lawyers, I think, were always there, um, but I think a lot of it has to do now with, or most of it, I should say, is is you know the the economics. Um, I'll go back to to uh, you know what Gary Wall. We were talking about him earlier over at Jack, and I think he just he shares a lot of wisdom with me. Um, he was given an opportunity uh, twenty plus years ago to buy a building in Nashville off of Broadway Street. I don't remember the the, the exact price, but I it was several hundred thousand dollars, maybe short of a million dollars. Uh, it was right after 9-11. And at that point, uh, Broadway was still pretty run down. It was not a really the, 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 there was a few uh, bars and restaurants down there, but nothing compared to what it was now or what it is now. And uh, he passed on that opportunity to invest in this building. And he saw the other day uh, in the newspaper that that building just sold for $18 million. <laughs> yeah. And 
his analogy was that at that point, he didn't see it. He didn't have the vision to see that Broadway was going to turn to what it is today. And it was really this undervalued real estate. And it just took someone to come in, redo that building, turn it into a great restaurant, a great bar. And it just kind of brought up the whole rest of the neighborhood. And we see that all, all the time with uh, you know uh, downtowns being revitalized and so forth. And the analogy is, in his mind, it's very much like radio. I think that radio stations are these incredible assets that unfortunately are, I, I think by our own doing, are kind of looked upon and being in a bad neighborhood. And I think that these stations need some investment, just like that building off of Broadway, uh, to turn them into back to what they were. And when you look in, we'll tie this back into AI and back into my kind of assessment of right now it being average, if we continue just to put average content on a radio station, whether that's, you know, uh, at and I don't mean this as a dig to anyone, but average uh, air talent or average imaging or average you know music or whatever it is, we're going to get average results. Uh, if we really invest and we revitalize these stations and we invest in that content, I do think that they can absolutely be turned around just like that building. In Nashville was turned around. Uh, but right now, I feel that we've kind of self-inflicted this wound because we've cut back so significantly on the marketing, on the investment in the talent, on you know just the overall investment in the building. So if we would approach uh, where we are in the business with a beginner's sort of mindset, what advice with a fresh perspective would you uh, give to operators uh, and uh, influencers in the industry to make a difference? I think the advice is right now for a lot of these companies, we need to, A, make investments, but I think part of that's going to be having to re retool the economics because a lot of the groups got themselves into way too much debt. And unfortunately that leads to more and more cuts and it makes it almost impossible for them to be able to make the investments that they need to. So I think it becomes unfortunately the spiral that's very hard to break. And so I was hopeful when we saw, you know, Cumulus and iHeart um, uh, go through those restructurings um, that, uh, you know, that there'd be more investment into these these various uh, assets. And I think that to some degree there has been, but I think unfortunately, economically, they couldn't have planned for the pandemic. They couldn't have planned for, uh, you know, what we're seeing with inflation. So I think it's been hard uh, for them, given the current economic headwinds, to make those investments. And so you almost have to completely um, uh, start from scratch in some ways and uh, maybe go back to where you know, back into the 70s and the 80s where we just had a few handful of radio stations, but we really invested heavily in them. So when did you first look at leadership skills and look at yourself and kind of hone those skills? <laughs> I don't know if I've ever honed them, Buzz. That's very nice of you to, uh, nice of you to say. Um, you know, a lot of it, again, uh, very fortunate. My parents, uh, you know, my father's a physician. My mom was a, a teacher. And uh, uh, so I, I think I naturally had uh, a lot of... Uh, good influences around me. And then I got to go to a, you know, a good, went to USD and, um, I did student government there. And so got some, uh, a, a little bit there. And then, you know, these just uh, the, the mentors that I've had, I mean, I've been really fortunate to have, you know, great people around me and, uh, take time and, you know, share their knowledge, but I'm still honestly, man, I'm learning, uh, every, every day. 
When did you learn delegation? <laughs> you know, um, that probably, you know, a bit from Johnny, a bit from Tracy. Tracy was very, uh, I was very, again, lucky to have people that empowered me. Um, it, Craig Rossi, who is the market manager, the uh, the general manager here. I remember, uh, you know, Roy Lachlan coming in uh, and, you know, Roy would have his big yellow notepad with all his ideas. And he said, you're the program director, but you need to, you know, as the market manager, you need to give me uh, my, um, uh, basically time, give me the time to pitch my ideas. And even if you don't like any of them, I just want you to hear them out. But I was never, there wasn't uh, a lot of cram downs at, at the time when I was in the business. And so I was very lucky to have people that uh, empowered me and, and ultimately took a chance on. So let's talk about how uh, Benstown came to be created. Talk about that whole process. Walk me through it. Yeah. Um, so in 2009, I was invited to leave uh, Clear Channel. That was when uh, President Obama, the day <laughs> invited to leave, invited, invited to leave. Uh, President Obama was getting inaugurated that day, and they had major uh, layoffs. It was right after uh, Bain Capital bought the company. And um, if you, if we go back in the time machine, that was uh, something they didn't want to close on. And there was a bunch of uh, you know legal maneuvering, and ultimately a judge forced that. And so they had to make a lot of cuts. It was in the throes of the financial recession. And so uh, they, they made some bold moves and I got caught up in that. And uh, through Tracy Johnson, so many things go back around to Tracy, I had been introduced uh, to my partners, Andy and Ollie. He was overseas and uh, he was in Europe, I think at Radio Days or uh, something along those lines, and met Andy and Ollie. And they had come over prior to 2009 to the States to see him, wanted to tour a uh, US radio station. And so Tracy had called me going, hey, do you mind showing him around? It was my FM at the time. I said, absolutely. I took him to Bob's Big Boy for, uh, <laughs> for an all American meal. And uh, they were in the jingle business and they were interested in growing uh, here in the States. And so when I got let go, uh, it really kind of was an opportunity to uh, to start a business with them. And we saw uh, a, a kind of a, a space with imaging libraries. And so we started with four or five libraries. And shortly thereafter that, we grew into voiceover and uh, custom imaging and than uh, long-form syndication. And uh, it just all kind of came together really uh, or organically um, and through, you know, just ultimately relationships. And how did the team come together? Did it come together organically as well? It really did. I initially, Masa, uh, who's been with us almost from the very beginning, I knew him. He was invited to leave Clear Channel the same day. He was at Premiere, and we didn't know each other at the time, but Eileen Thorgerson had introduced us afterwards. And so I remember hiring uh, Masa, and uh, I would just write him his uh, paycheck uh, out of my own personal account at the beginning. I, I just, you know, I was lucky. At the time, I was bitter about it, but candidly, in retrospect, Clear Channel took good care of me on the back end. I had like nine months worth of and then uh, Tracy again uh, comes to my save uh, to, to, to my rescue. He was working at the time for M2O, and so I got hired to work at M2O to consult. Those were loyalty reward programs when uh, you know that was that was a big deal in Reg John's uh, company, and Tracy was working there. And so I got to do that and kind of build Benstown simultaneously. So it all really worked out very well. Um, and in retrospect, professionally, while I loved being a program director uh, and really enjoyed the people I worked with and just had a great time, uh, in retrospect, professionally, it turned out to be the, the best thing that could have happened. 
That sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, I guess it depends on the day. There are certain days where you're like, well, I don't know. This is this can be more of a headache uh, than I uh, than I I would like. But uh, there are more days than not, Buzz, that I am incredibly fortunate and uh, feel very lucky for uh, a uh, just you know the people that I get to work with, the clients that we get to work with, and all, all the people that have you know supported me. So when your roadmap for, for Ben's town, how do you uh, put innovation in the midst of that roadmap during challenging economic times? That's tough, man. And it's easy to to be critical of some of the operators like we were talking about a couple minutes ago. Um, but it is very tough when you're in those the, the economic challenging times. And uh, just interest rates, as much as they've gone up here over the last few months, or the last, I should say, 14 months, our price of lending, or borrowing, I should say, has gone up almost 400%. Um, and so it all of a sudden becomes much more expensive uh, to invest, uh, which is very, very challenging uh, from an operator standpoint or even from our standpoint. So you've got to, and, and I don't have to worry about, I've got partners and so forth, but I don't have to worry about shareholders and uh, making sure that, uh, you know, private equity investors are getting their ROI. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that uh, regard. If you want, by the way, I don't know if you've read this or not, Buzz, but uh, just a little bit of a tangent. Have you read Jeff Simoleon's uh, book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down? I have. He goes into great book, right? And he goes into you know some of those struggles when all of a sudden radio went from you know uh, Wall Street's uh, darling to you know no one was interested, and so there's all these economic forces that the operators have to abide by. That I personally, because we're a much smaller uh, company, don't have any uh, shareholders and so forth, don't have to uh, rule by. And so back to sorry, it's a long way around the barn, but back to your original question, we tend to be pretty bold here, so. So um, we we don't take giant salaries. I'm well paid and I'm very uh, fortunate, but we and the partners feel the same way. We really invest very heavily back into the company. So not all the time does that pay off. Uh, There are times where we make a mistake and we invest in things that uh, that end up failing um, and that, you know, we we learn from those mistakes. Uh, But uh, we I guess we we go big, um, and so that's kind of the long way around. We're not afraid to invest and ultimately uh, make less money, uh, but uh, feel it's the right thing for the co- in lieu of thinking or uh, we make less money because we feel it's the right thing for the company to reinvest. That answer your question. Totally. Yeah. What are some of the favorite musical experiences you had uh, in your career that you can share? <laughs> Great question, man. Um, Humphreys by the Bay in uh, San Diego is an amazing venue out uh, in Shelter Island. And I think in 97 or 98, I can't remember exactly when, Michael Hutchins came through from NXS. And I always was just a gigantic um, NXS fan. And this was like the last time he came through before, unfortunately, tragically uh, taking his own life. And I remember being at Humphrey's having uh, these amazing uh, seats. I mean, we were practically front, uh, maybe two or three rows back, but uh, just these amazing seats. And I felt like he was just, uh, he was the epitome of a rock star. And uh, so that probably stands out the most to me uh, because I was just really young, really into um, in excess. And here I got to like see, uh, you know, see them live, even though he was on the, you know, unfortunately not in a great part of his career. It was still uh, something very memorable. 
And then uh, what, and I, I don't have Google in front of me, but I cannot remember exactly what year uh, he had passed away, but Michael happened to be on vacation and I was on the air and he had um, committed suicide in Australia. And so it was the next day in Australia and I was doing nights at KFMB. And KFMB had a television station in the building as well. They were the CBS affiliate. And so I was there doing the show by myself and in comes the TV station to do an interview with me about Michael Hutchins passing away. And uh, that was, in, I mean, obviously incredibly sad uh, news, but uh, it was very surreal for me. I'd probably been in the position for, you know, a year or maybe, you know, less and hear like an idol of mine, uh, you know, died and I'm being interviewed to comment on it. That was a very, I, I know it's macabre and dark. But that's probably what stands out to me most. Um, one more too on that. I got to take my dad was always a huge Carlos uh, Santana fan, and I got to take him to see Carlos Santana at the uh, Hollywood Bowl, and we got to go backstage and meet Carlos Santana and did a whole uh, photo shoot. And my dad just absolutely loved that. So that's also really memorable. That's awesome. Yeah. Talk about your foray into podcasting since you're on a podcast. I uh, <laughs> again, I, I keep on bringing up some of the same people, but it's it's funny. Uh, these people have been so integral in my life. Uh, it was Gary Wall's idea. Uh, Gary had uh, we were having dinner a few years ago here, and he thought, you know, you should uh, you you should do a podcast uh, where you interview uh, you know people in the business, and uh, it was really his brainchild. And uh, I kind of like I, I didn't really buy into the idea at the beginning, and uh, then I finally decided, you know what, let's do it. I tried my first one with uh, with Johnny K, and uh, it worked out all right. I think. I think you're pretty natural. Well, I it, that means a lot coming from you, my friend. I'm I'm a big fan, and in, in speaking of podcasts, a big fan of your podcast, and I uh, really enjoy listening to it. And I I've really enjoyed uh, being on with you, man. It's uh, like I said at the beginning, I am uh, a very grateful for everything you've uh, done for us uh, over the years, and in, in the partnership that we've had. Uh, I'm a big fan of of your podcast, and uh, thank you for uh, for thinking of me and, and considering me. Well, thank you for always being first class, supportive, um, curious, and a dear friend. I so appreciate you being on. Well, anything we can ever do for you, Buzz, uh, please do not hesitate to ask. And uh, I could not recommend uh, you uh, any more. I think you are uh, a brilliant, uh, brilliant programming mind and uh, I would uh, love to work with you more in the future. Thanks, Chachi. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. 
even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm -hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 